We're going to be in 1 Peter. Again, we go through books of the Bible here. We're in 1 Peter. Um, we're going to be on page um, 1,000. Uh, what is that? 14, 1,014. We're going to be in verses uh, 3 through 9. And Audrey's going to come up and read. So will you guys please stand as we read and honor God's word together. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, one of the biggest words that stands out there is is mercy. By God's mercy, you have caused us to be born again. And as Cole quoted, the The beautiful thing of the sun rising from the east every single day is a great reminder of the scripture that your mercies renew each and every day. You are God of great mercy, and we are so thankful that you are. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have from us from your apostle Peter this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. We got a lot to cover this morning, so we're just going to dive right into the text. Uh, First Peter, this section 1, 3 through 9, I, I mean, I liked it in the past, but I, as I spent the week just meditating on it and digesting it, I can honestly say it has become one of my most favorite passages in all the Bible. The wisdom, the theology, the practicality that, that, that Peter brings out here is just amazing. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Peter impart some of the best wisdom in all the Bible in these verses right here. He boils down the Christian experience down to, to really four pillars. They are hope, faith, love, and joy. Obviously, this is not exhaustive, but this is a great foundational text for us to build our lives on through 2020. So we're going we're gonna to jump right in. First, we have living hope. Living hope in verses 3 through 5. And we might even say living hope and a future inheritance. Uh, Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just sung those songs, uh, that that sentence in in worship this morning. And this is how Peter starts off. He starts off this section with praise, with worship, with doxology. He wants to orient our hearts right off the bat. Before he gets into the nuts and bolts of, of this message, before he gives us all the commands, he wants us to sit back and reorient our hearts to Jesus and to worship. He knows his audience. He knows who he's writing to, that they have been walking through difficult times. He knows that life can be muddy, it can be rocky, it can be gritty. And what Peter is doing right now is he's telling us to look up, orient our hearts, orient our eyes to the God of heaven and earth, to the big, to the glorious, to the merciful God that is in heaven, that is with you. 
So he is, this is how he starts out this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out with worship, doxology. Last week we were reminded that God is a God of love who, who chooses us as elect exiles. And this morning we see that God is a God of mercy. And not just mercy, but look at it in verse 3. According to his what? His great mercy, his abundant mercy, his overflowing mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that God is rich in mercy and he makes us alive. We serve and have not only a loving God, but also a merciful God. And we see here that Peter says that this is the motivation in God saving us and God causing us to be born again. Again, verse 3, according to his great, abundant, overflowing mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We know this word mercy, right? If we've been around the crossing or in the Christian faith or read our scripture. Let me just remind you of the definition of what mercy is. Mercy is this. It's God not giving us what we do deserve. It's God not giving us what we do deserve. We know apart from Christ that we have sinned. Therefore, what we deserved is justice, is judgment. But because God the Father saw fit to give what we deserve to Jesus on the cross and him die on the cross to make payment for our, 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 our sins, we can now receive and be benefactors of God's mercy. And what does God's mercy do? It causes us to be born again. It causes us to know Jesus. It gives us salvation. And it says this, Peter says that this gift of God's great mercy to us has caused us to be born again. In other words, God and God alone is the initiator of our salvation. He is the cause of us coming to faith. He is the one that makes us born again. The biblical term here of this idea of born again is that of regeneration, regeneration. And regeneration is this, is where God through his Holy Spirit, he takes out our hard, dead hearts and gives us, and get this, he gives us a heart with the ability to respond by faith to the gospel. That's what regeneration is. That's what God's mercy produces. He gives us a heart that is now a bit, has the ability to respond to the gospel. And so that's the biblical term of revelation. Let me read you Ezekiel, the new covenant um, of this idea of God's regeneration and what it does. It says this, he says in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is. And I will put my spirit within you and what? And cause you to walk in my statutes. He goes on in Titus chapter 3 verse 5. And this is how he describes regeneration. He saved us. Jesus saved us. Not because of any works done by us, but according to what? His mercy through the washing of regeneration. So this is what, this is what God's mercy is. He, he caused us to be born again. Just like God was the originator and the author of your physical birth, He is also the originator and the author of your spiritual birth. Peter uses this word born again and the apostle John uses the same word in, in John chapter three when he's talking to Nicodemus and he tells his spiritual leader, you, you must be born again if you are to see the Lord. 
And so this is this term that by God's mercy, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. So for you and for me, we are one of those born-again Christians, right? We are one of those born-again Christians. And I know there can be some negative terms that maybe come along with that. Like you might have some friends or family members or people wherever where you live, work, and play that says, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again Christians. Anyone else ever hear that? Ever had that done, talked about? I've heard a number of times. And a couple things about that. Don't, don't run from it. Embrace that you've been born again. One, because there's no other definition of a Christian, right? I mean, if Jesus and John and Peter says, you've been born again, that's the definition of a Christian, then embrace that. And also, too, embrace it because this is the very example of God's mercy in your life. That's why we don't run from that term. Because this is the very example of God's mercy in your life. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And we're born again, we, we immediately receive two gifts we see here. One is for now, it's called living faith today, and then one is for the future, a future inheritance. Look again with me at 1 Peter 1, 3. He has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. To a living hope. You see, apart from Christ, the Bible is clear. We have no hope. Ephesians chapter 2 says, all people without Christ have no hope. The hope that they have is this worldly hope. And that it's something that has a a hope defined as this. Worldly hope is defined as this. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's, It's uncertain though. It's unsure. This is the hope we have apart from Christ. But for us who are in Christ, we have a biblical hope. And that, and that, that hope is concrete. It is sure. Because not built on a feeling, but it's built on the Lord Himself. It's built on the Lord Himself. So, where the Lord, for the, where the world's hope might say something like, man, I hope that 2020 is going to be a good year for me. Right? Or I hope that, you know, in 2020 I use all the weight, uh, lose all the weight that I gained during the holidays, right? Or I, I hope that, you know, the Denver Broncos will get the next Patrick Mahomes, right? These are wishes. This is uncertain. It's not concrete. But when it comes to biblical hope, it's concrete because, again, our hope is not found in a feeling. It's found on the Lord himself, on God himself. Psalm 22, 11 says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. The reason why we say that God's promises are concrete and are sure is because he has made a lot of promises in the past. And all those promises have come to fruition, have been fulfilled. Therefore, when we see his future promises to us, we look back and see that he was perfect in fulfilling those promises and he will be perfect in fulfilling the future promises. So that's where our hope is. We hope in God. Now Jesus called Peter, and and Peter understands this because he experienced this. Remember when Jesus called Peter uh, to come, and he called him, we looked at that last week, he said, Peter, come, follow me, and I will what? I will make you fishers of men. At that point, Peter might have had this worldly perspective on hope. And he thought, yeah, man, that sounds like a good idea. I think that's something I want to do. Let's go and see if it comes to pass. Well, guess what? That hope that Peter might have had died when Jesus was hung on the cross and buried and put in the tomb. And you think all of even all of Jerusalem around that time, 
You, you remember the, the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. We see that even these two pilgrims that were, that were now leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus even had this hope and this hope that was dashed from them because they said this. They said this to, to, to Jesus in their conversation. But we hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel. Looking to Jesus, they hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel, but he was crucified and he died. So... Maybe he wasn't our hope. So everyone around that time that Jesus died was hoping that he was the Savior. And hope was dashed when he was laid in the tomb. So the question is, what changed? What changed in Peter's heart? What changed in the people around Jerusalem's heart? And that's where we again look at the second half of that verse. It says that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what changed. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus said on and on in his gospels that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and that he would raise himself from the dead. And this is exactly what happened. And this infused hope into Peter. Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And it was in this moment, it was in this moment that biblical hope, the certainty of God's promises, again, overwhelmed Peter and his heart. And he believed. When it looked like God had lost control with Jesus dying on the cross, with Jesus being buried and hope with it in the grave, we see that this is when God was in most control. And it is at this point where this biblical hope was birthed in Peter and the rest of the world. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb, all of his promises came with him, i.e. living hope. Living hope stepped out of the tomb with Jesus. Promises such as this in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, what? Shall live. Promises like this in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of, and his righteousness, and what? And I will take care of all your needs. Promises such as this in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of this water, I give them what? Will never thirst. Passages like John chapter 6, where he says that no one, nothing can snatch you out of my hand if you've been born again. These are the hope-filled promises that we have because they're based on, again, not a feeling because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has raised himself from the dead. So when Peter and those in Jerusalem saw Jesus on the cross and go into the tomb, they were devastated. They were devastated. And all of a sudden, the third day he rose again and hope was reborn in their hearts. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He puts it like this. Hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but to be seen in the night of adversity. That's what hope is. That's what hope is. That's what Peter experiences. And this is what you and I can experience just alongside of Peter. That our hope is in the promises of Jesus Christ. And we know for certain that they will come to pass. Why? Because Jesus has been risen from the dead. Second, we see not only a living hope, but an inheritance. Verse 4, you've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is what we're, we're living for. This is what we're guaranteed. This is our future, this inheritance. Now get this, look at this inheritance. This inheritance is so glorious, it's so wonderful, it's so awesome, that we don't have the words to describe it. 
We don't have the words in our language, in the English, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, to describe it positively. We have to describe it. Peter describes it in its negative form, what it's not. This is how glorious this is. It says it's imperishable. It means this inheritance that you and I have is, uh, it can't die. It can't be destroyed. Uh, it's undefiled. It means it can never spoil or be corrupted. And it's unfading. It will never grow dull or lose its luster. I love how one put it. He put it like this. This inheritance that we have is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. Isn't that good? That's what's waiting for you. It's waiting for me. Now, some of us in here maybe have been already received like an earthly inheritance. Uh, some of us uh, that with kids, like my, my kids, will get an inheritance when Rita and I pass away. I was just recently blessed with inheritance. As you guys know, my mom passed away, but my grandma still lived, and then she passed away last year. So I got my mom's inheritance from my grandma this past, uh, this past year, 2019. And it was an awesome blessing uh, to me and my family. I mean, it did some wonderful things for us. And we got a nice uh, chunk of cabbage from, from grandma. But here's the thing. As wonderful as it was, it, it will never can compare to this. Why? Because we, we bought some things. We bought some toys. We bought some things that were just, you know, go along with the house. We, we redid our, our floors and did some other things. And, um, and that was a blessing. But eventually, all that stuff is just going to end up in the landfill, Right? Uh, we took some vacations and we made some great memories. And, but as we get older, some of that stuff is going to fade. Some of those memories are going to fade and it's going to lose its luster. Not with this inheritance. This inheritance will never fade. It will never be defiled. It will never perish. This is what we are looking for. And if you are born again, if you've seen your need and you repented of your sins and by faith you've trusted in what Christ has done for you, this is what's waiting for you. This is yours, and you can guarantee you will receive it. Because look at how, look at the next verse at the end of 4b. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, right here, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. I don't know about you, but I got this verse underlined and highlighted in my Bible. Why? Because this inheritance is kept by God himself. Literally mean it's guarded by God himself. He is the one keeping the watchful eye over your inheritance. He is the one by his power who is holding on to your inheritance and ready to give it to you on that day. Let me ask you a question. Is there a more secure place than heaven? Is there a more secure place than heaven where your inheritance could be kept? No, not at all. It's kept here. We know that Jesus says, like, to store our, he store our treasures where? Up in heaven. Why? Because no thieves can break in and steal it. There's no moth. There's no rust that's going to make it decay. No, it's guarded by heaven. So I want you to think about this right now. As a born-again Christian, your inheritance. Think about your inheritance right now. It is being guarded by God as we speak. And he can't wait to give it to you on that day. Talk about security. Talk about um, something that's going to be a guaranteed. This is your inheritance. What is our inheritance? What does it look like? Well, it's kept in heaven for us again by God's power through our faith. It's a, it's we have, we're going to have finally have access to Jesus. Later on, we're going to see that 
we love him and we believe in Jesus even though we don't see him. But at this point, when we receive this inheritance, we're going to see him. We're going to have fellowship with him. He's going to be tangible. So we're going to have access to Jesus and God the Father. We're going to have new resurrected bodies. Amen to that, right? We're going to be in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth that we're going to enjoy forever without sin, without pain, without sickness, without death. And we're going to get to enjoy it with those of our loved ones who have maybe gone before us. Revelation 21 and 22 describe what heaven is going to be like. And he kind of sums it up in this, that the Lord is making all things new. This is your inheritance and this is my inheritance. And this is how Peter starts out this book. By worshiping and looking to God's mercy. That he's caused us to be born again to a living hope and to this inheritance. And so then secondly, we see genuine faith. We see genuine faith in verses 6 through 7. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, when I was walking through this passage and diagramming it and outlining it, there were two words that just jumped out to me. Let me read it again and see if you can figure out what those two words are. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What do you think those two words were? Silence. Rejoicing and grieving. Rejoicing and How do those two words go together in one sentence? How can you be rejoicing but at the same time be grieving? How does that work, Peter? And what we see are these two words are they're, they're oxymorons, right? They're, they're opposites. And we live in a world of oxymorons. I mean, just think about it. You might go to the restaurant, you know, and you're on the coast and and you want to get some shrimp, but there's a particular kind of shrimp you want to get, right? What kind of shrimp do you want to get? You want to get jumbo shrimp, right? How those two, jumbo shrimp, how does that go together? You know, you, you, go, you go outside, you go to the restroom, you wash your hands, and you, you wipe it with a what? Paper towel? How those two words go together? Icy hot? What's a minor miracle, right? And how about this, all you that are, are businessmen and women? Microsoft works, right? Uh, But how do these words go together? Rejoicing and grieving. Well, Peter tells us, it's not that we rejoice because we're grieving. We're not happy about grieving. We're not happy about suffering. We don't rejoice in that, but we rejoice in what Peter just said. Notice those two words, in this. Well, in what? In what Peter just said. In verses 3 through 5, we, we rejoice because of God's mercy that has been shown in our lives by causing us to be born again. We rejoice in a living hope that we know when the times get tough that we have promises in which we can hang our hat, we can hang our lives on because we know for certain that Jesus is looking out for us and will take care of us. And it's because we know we have a living inheritance. We have, a, we have an inheritance to come in the future. This is why we, we can rejoice in suffering, because these are the things that are true. And again, Peter knows the, the audience that he's writing to. He knows he's writing to people who are suffering, to people who are walking through severe trials. Again, they're under Roman rule. And again, this area, I think I was going back between Turkey and Iraq last week, but it is Turkey. These, these churches that he's writing is in the area of Turkey. They're under Roman rule, under the, the emperor of Nero. And we know throughout history, history tells us that Nero was a brutal, brutal dictator. 
some say that he would, he would not only Christians, but other people that just, he just liked to hurt people. That he would dip them in oil, he would light them on fire, and he would use them as, as torches to light up gardens. He would take animal skins, and what he would do with that is he'd put humans and animal skins, put them in the arena against lions and tigers, and he just liked to see people get annihilated. And that, I think, is a part of it, but it's not the, the main part, because notice that little phrase, grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. This is, this is much more broader than the, the suffering and the trials that can come by the hands of one man. This is, the, this is I think, the, the sufferings of life. This is the sufferings of being in exile that we talked about last week in a, in a foreign land. So these sufferings that Peter is talking to and these people that Peter is talking to, we could really just insert us into this audience. And some of these other things that we're facing, some of these other trials that we are facing, Peter addresses in these letters. See if, see if it's ever happened to you. Have you ever been slandered? Has your name ever been slandered? How about accusations of wrongdoing? Has everyone accused you of doing something wrong which you know you haven't done because you're a Christian? How about being unloving? You're not going with the, the wave of culture. You're actually standing against some of the truths of culture out there about maybe marriage, gender, whatever it may be, and you're standing firm, and they're saying, oh, you're unloving because you're not being inclusive. Anyone in there face that? How about this one? You're ignorant. You're just so narrow-minded, you Christians. These are, these are some of the trials. These are some of the sufferings that is happening to the audience Peter is writing to. You know, they're struggling in marriage. There's some, there's some relational hardships. They're being a bad neighbor. Maybe some of this too. Maybe I'm, I'm sure of it that back then, even some of these exiles that Peter's addressing and is trying to encourage through trials had miscarriages. Were depressed. They lost a job. They're lonely. They had a death of a loved one. These are, these are all the various trials that these believers are going through. That word various means multifaceted. It's like a stained glass window. It's just not one color. It's like trials come in all colors, shapes, and sizes. James even says this when we walk through the book of James. So, so Peter knows who he's writing to, and yet he's saying rejoice and grieve at the same time. Peter knows that being in exile is hard and you're going to suffer. So he wants to, to give us some principles about trials. And here he points out a couple things. First, we see that trials are temporary. They're momentary. Look at this one. Though now for a little while. Though now for... That's a, that's a time clause. Uh, Peter's putting uh, some time on the, the length of a trial. Trials are coming. You might be walking through a trial right now, but you know for certain that this trial will end sooner or later. Now we know some trials seem like, man, we're in this trial forever. And we know that's not the case because verse 6 says, all trials will cease at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Second, we see that in our trials, uh, trials hurt, right? Suffering hurts. They're painful. And here we see the heart of Peter as a shepherd. Here we see the heart of Peter as a shepherd. Look at the uh, sixth verse 6b, toward the end. Though now for a little while, if necessary, what does Peter say? You need to suck it up, right? You need to stop whining. And you especially need not to share with anyone else in your church. Is that what Peter says? Of course he doesn't say that. That would be unloving. But Peter, being a loving shepherd, says, hey, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. 
You're grieved by various trials. Trials hurt. Trials are tough. Solomon, one of the wisest men in all the Bible to ever live, not even just in the Bible, but to ever live, said this in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to laugh and a time to what? Weep. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to, to mourn. And, and this is why I love the Bible. Because the Bible is real. It's authentic. It's gritty. It doesn't hide from tough truths. Peter and Solomon say, when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. Which means what? It means don't put on a mask. If you're walking through a trial and you, and you walk through those doors on Sunday morning, you go to life group and someone says, man, how's it going? Don't say, oh, it's going great. It's awesome. And you know, life is just burning behind you. It's okay. Don't put on the mask. Do what humans should do when suffering. Cry, mourn, weep. Reach out. Say you need help. Ask for prayer. Especially in the church. Especially in our community at the crossing and in life group. This past week for, for our family, it was brutal. We had, we, you know, 2020, it's like, yeah, everything's going great. And all of a sudden Thursday night comes along. And we just got carpet bond with, with, with suffering and trials. First with my brother. Um, some of you guys know the story. He's, he's a fugitive right now. Well, not now. He got, this is what we found out on Thursday. He was a fugitive running from the law. I get a call on Wednesday night from him asking me to help him run from the law. And then when I say, no, I cannot do that, he, you know, he proceeds to, to cuss me out, tell me how I suck as a brother, tell me how I suck as a pastor, you know, et cetera. And that, and that stings. And then Thursday night we get the call. It's like the cops caught him. Cops caught him. Now he's in jail. So that one stung. That one hurt. This all happens on Thursday night. Maybe about 30, thir- Thursday midday to maybe about 30 minutes later, we get a call from my wife and, and uh, a, a kid that, that Stephen played with. 19-year-old kid killed in a one-car car accident. One, one of his good buddies that play lacrosse with he 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 plays out in florida so he's going back to school so on on thursday midday thursday you know kiss mom and dad goodbye flies to florida gets in an accident the call the next call that his parents get is your son is dead couple couple minutes later we get another call and we have this relational issue with some other good friends of ours of course no one in the crossing Trials suck. They hurt. And, and, and Thursday night, we go to life group with the Whitney's and, and we go to that life group and we could have easily just pulled back. Right? Not go, hey, I don't, I don't feel like going tonight and isolate ourselves. But no, we needed to go. We needed to go. We needed to share. Hey, this is where we're at. And they entered in. They prayed for us. They empathized with us. So if that's you today, if that's you this morning, if you walk through these doors and you're hurting and you got the mask on, man, take it off. Take it off. And let the people around you who love you enter in and serve you, encourage you, pray for you, love you. That's what Peter is talking about. 
You've been grieved by various trials. You guys can be, you guys can really be praying for us, especially this Friday. Because that's when this young man's funeral is. So you've been grieved by trials. Peter, Peter also says that these trials that you and I face are, are for a purpose. And this is why we can also rejoice. They're, they're for a purpose. James also talks about this in James chapter 1. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, here's the purpose, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, through it, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says is that these trials that we encounter in our lives, they, they prove something. And what do they prove? They prove if or if not we have genuine faith. If we truly believe in Jesus, this is what they prove. And here's another thing. As I, as I look out and as I scan this body, I, I know a lot of your guys' stories. I know your trials. I know your heartaches. I know your, your sufferings. I know what you have gone through. And yet... You're here. You're here this morning. And why are you here this morning? You guys are here this morning because you have genuine faith. You're here this morning because you have authentic faith. You're here this morning because God's mercy is real in your souls. And that you understand that when trials hit, that you can go to certain things out there. Yes, you want to go to the church. You want to ask for prayer. But ultimately... You lean on the only person that can walk you through this trial, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to get you through your plight. And this is where you guys have built your life on, on the solid rock of Jesus. They prove your faith, that your faith is genuine. And that's encouragement to me, and it should be an encouragement to you, to the person you're sitting next to. This is what our trials reveal. And we also know that genuine faith is hard to prove unless we go through a trial, right? It's hard to tr prove genuine faith when everything is hunky-dory, right? When everything is going well. And so we have a kind of a love-hate relationship with trials. I know I have a love-hate relationship with trials. I mean, we hate trials. Why? Because they, they're painful, right? They hurt. They leave scars. They might leave you with a limp, right? Trials hurt. Trials, basically, they suck. Trials suck. But also, we, we love them. Why? Because they know they're producing something in us. They know they're proving our faith. They, we know that they are making us more and more like Christ. We also know that... In, First or Second Corinthians, I think it's Second Corinthians in chapter one, says some of the reasons why you go through these trials is so that you can walk through someone else who's about to go through the same trial. That you can give the comfort to another person about to go through this trial. So not only does it prove your genuineness of faith, but it makes you a better lover of people. We know this to be true. Psalm 119.71 says it this way. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I went through suffering this trial so that what? I might learn your statutes. I might grow and be more mature. So the purpose of genuine faith is to 
test your genuineness of your faith. And we see it's more precious than gold that perishes though it's been tested by fire. And here Peter gives us a great illustration of this testing of, of this idea of purified gold going through the hands of a goldsmith. We're probably, probably familiar with this, this process. If you've been to church, you probably heard this illustration, but it's worth repeating. It's worth remembering how a goldsmith would work or purify gold. Basically what they do is they, they, just, they just ratchet up the furnace so it gets this ungodly temperature. And they take this gold that's in this pot and they put it in the furnace. And, and what happens is all the impurities of, that's in the gold gets heated up and, and it rises to the top. Then the goldsmith takes it out, scrapes off the impurities, puts it back in there, impurities rise up. And they just do this process over and over and over again. And then when, the, when it gets to be its purest form of gold, after they've done this multiple times, it is said that, that the, the goldsmith would then they take it out, they would peer over it. And they knew it was at its purest form when they could see their reflection clearly in this gold. They could see their reflection clearly in its gold. Now this is a great illustration for us. Because this is what the Lord does for us as a goldsmith. We're the gold. He, he turns up the heat. He puts us in the fire. The impurities of sin boil up. And by His Spirit and by Christ, He scrapes them out of our lives. Why? So that when God peers over and looks at us, and He sees your life, and He sees my life, what does He see? The reflection He sees is of His Son, Jesus. He sees us becoming more and more like Christ. Here's a couple other things to note about this process. One, He doesn't do it all at one time, right? A goldsmith will probably do this all at one time. Right? He'll just keep us putting in the fire, putting in the fire, putting, taking us out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, and we're just getting fried. But here, God is so merciful, He gives us seasons of this. He doesn't do it all at once. He, he, he purifies us over a lifetime. So there's times where, man, the heat's turned up a little bit, and we feel it, and we see, we feel the work He's doing, and He scrapes it off. And then He might give us a couple seasons of joy, a couple seasons of, not joy, of on green pastures where maybe not everything is falling apart, right? Here's the other thing to note, and this is what's awesome. The Lord heats up the furnace just enough, just enough to take away the impurities, but never to destroy the gold. That's crucial. One said it this way. If God puts you in the furnace, his eye is on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. Isn't that good? Peter says that, the testing of gold is precious, but what's even more precious than gold is tested faith. Is tested faith. And Peter finishes off verse 7, and this is what I call a stunner, right? A stunner, right? He says this, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that though as tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is just amazing. When you stand before Jesus at a second coming, the final judgment, you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to speak over you. He's going to see the genuineness of your faith and this is what you're going to hear. You're going to hear words of a proud Savior over you. A proud Savior over you. He is going to heap words of prayer, uh, of praise and honor over you. He is going to rejoice over you. He's going to say what Zechariah uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 says, he is going to sing over you. 
And we know what his words, when he speaks, how all of creation came into being and how beautiful creation is. What's going to happen to your soul when he sings over you because he's delighted in you because of your genuineness of your faith? Is that not amazing? That's incredible. You're going to hear the words of what it says in Matthew 25, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is going to be pleased with you because of your faith. So this is why we can rejoice and grieve at the same time in our trials, because we understand that there's something being proved. Our, our faith is being proved genuine so that one day we will have a proud Savior speak and sing over you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's incredible. Incredible promise. Finally, third and quickly, we see this inexpressible joy and love in verses 8 through 9. It says this in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If, if this is not highlighted in your Bible, this should be, I mean, this whole, this whole, this whole, all these verses should be underlined in your Bible or highlighted, right? But this is another incredible truth that Peter, Peter is saying. And it should encourage you and me, again, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible, because sometimes I think when we read the New Testament in particular, that the reason why all these people believe, the reason why all these people have genuine faith, is because they, they saw Jesus. They heard Jesus teach. They saw him resurrected from the dead. But point in fact is most people didn't. The people that Peter is writing to never saw Jesus. They're in the same boat as you and me. They're just going on Peter's eyewitness testimony and the scriptures that are being written this letter. That's where their faith is going on. That's where their hope is. That's where their love is. Though they not see him, they love him. Though they not see him, they believe and rejoice. So these recipients of these that are reading for the first time should bring you and should bring me incredible comfort because he's talking and writing to us. That's the reality. And I also think this is what's happening. I also think that Peter might even be alluding to or maybe even saying outright that your faith... Your love is better than mine. That's what, that's what Peter might be saying. You, you might have a greater faith than me. Why? Because I walked with Jesus, Peter's saying, for three years. I touched him. I supped with him. Supped, not slept. Supped, right? I ate with him. I should have just said it. He ate with him. I was with him on a boat. I heard him teach. I saw him raise again from the dead. And so I believe. But your faith, you haven't seen him. And yet you love him. Your, your faith is greater than my faith. I think Jesus even alludes this to remember with Doubting Thomas. You guys remember the scene with Doubting Thomas? Thomas didn't see. He showed himself to a couple of disciples. Thomas didn't see him yet. And he's like, I don't believe. I won't believe until I see him. And then Jesus appears to him. And Jesus appears to him and he touched my you know, hands, touched my side. Thomas does. And what does Jesus say? He says, you believe because what? You see me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So our faith could be, you make the argument, is even greater than the Apostle Peter. And that's an incredible statement that Peter is saying.
And because of this, it says, and we will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Again, there are no words for this joy. It's beyond our human language. It's beyond the way we can express ourselves. It's kind of like, have you ever sat, you know, and you saw a sunrise or a sunset, and there are just no words. It's just so glorious. It's just so beautiful. You're just like, wow. Wow. And that's the same way when we think about God's mercy in our lives of being born again, that he chose us to be born again. It's just this overwhelming feeling of inexpressible joy. It's like Peter says, it's just wow. Just wow. I'm amazed at your mercy, God. So, as I said at the beginning of the message, that this is some of the best, most encouraging wisdom in all the Bible. And I pray that we would meditate on this throughout the week. We meditate on God's mercy. We'd meditate on Him causing us to be born again. We'd meditate on the hope that we have, on the inheritance that is with us. We'd be, we'd marvel at the genuineness of our faith and how the Lord is undergirding and holding us and He's refining us and making us more and more like Christ. And as we look at the rest of 2020, that this is where we build our lives. Because if we do this, then we can be like with Peter each and every day. We can wake up and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can start our day with worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word. Lord, this truly is just one of the more incredible passages in all the Bible. One of the most encouraging, one of the most beautiful passages and I, learned, I love how Peter gets in it. Before he gets into all the nuts and bolts, all the commands, he just says, fix our eyes on Jesus, on his greatness, on his gloriness, and his power, but most importantly, because of his mercy towards us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.